Thank you, Matt, for leading us in worship. It's great to know that the leader of our church has so many different talents. Good morning, SBC. Uh, I hope you're all doing really well. And I think during these tough times, it's always a great thing to, to remind ourselves that we serve a God who is still in control. Just as Matt mentioned, he's the lion and the lamb. And so, yes, he's still in control. He's sovereign. He's over all things. But he's not over all things in some sort of a dictator, distant, cold sort of way. He is a loving heavenly father, and he eagerly wants us to approach him in prayer. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today. And so the title of today's sermon is Prayer and Persecution. You see, he delights to hear from us in the good and the bad times. But I see these tendencies in my own life where I sometimes view prayer as more of a religious chore and a duty, something that just has to be done instead of something that I really love to do. And so I'm hoping that through today's sermon, we'll be able to learn a few things about how to eagerly desire approaching God in prayer. I just want you to picture for a moment a couple who has been maybe married for about 10 years and on their 10th wedding anniversary, the husband arrives back from work at about half past five. He's got a beautiful bouquet of roses, some expensive chocolates, first miracles that he's remembered the day. And his wife comes to the door and she says, oh my word, that's amazing. You're so sweet. Thank you so much. But then she goes and she looks at his face and he's standing there like a bit of a plank, no emotion. And in a monotonous tone, he goes and he says these words, it is my duty. I'm just supposed to do this. You see, that is not honoring to the wife. If you were to ask her, she'd be very displeased. That situation wouldn't have ended very well. But I, I feel that so often we approach our prayer times with God in that same way. That it's just something that we are supposed to do instead of something that we absolutely love to do. That we get to lay our prayers and our petitions and even our complaints before God in prayer. And that's what we're going to see in today's psalm. So I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 55. And I'm well aware that there are about 23 verses in the psalm, but don't stress. I'm going to be preaching from verse 16 to verse 23. We can't just jump straight to the end of the psalm as much as we'd like to. We need to first see context, what the psalmist has covered earlier on in the psalm, and also what he was going through while he was busy writing the psalm, so we can extract as much as possible from, from here. It is once again David who writes the psalm. And almost certainly it was written during a rather tumultuous time of his life because he wrote this when his own son Absalom was trying to kill him. His son Absalom had gone and chased him out of the kingdom. David is on the run and while he's trying to run for his life, he writes Psalm 55. Some of you parents out there might think that your teen is a lot of work, but Absalom truly takes the cake. He wants the kingdom so badly that he's willing to kill his dad and then steal it from him. From verse 1 to 8, we see that David is crying out to God to please help him. He has tried crying out to other people in the past, but to no avail. It's never worked. He tried asking Saul for help, asking Saul to relent, please. But if anything, these cries just fell on deaf ears. They were ignored. And if anything, Saul just redoubled his efforts to try and go and kill David even more. But what these, what's beautiful to see is that in the life of David, these earlier hardships have taught him to always go to God in prayer. That is who he's now relying on. In these tough situations, he takes it straight to God, and that's what we'll see today. And David goes to, to God because he feels that he's being treated unfairly. 
He's not being cast out of his kingdom for misadministration or for corruption or trying to build his own kandla overlooking Jerusalem. Not at all. It's because of his own son Absalom's evil desires that he's busy being cast out of his own palace. That is why we see David in extreme turmoil in this psalm. Not knowing exactly what to do in the situation, but knowing exactly where he can run to. We also see that David doesn't exactly know what to do here. So it's quite strange to see in verse 6, he cries out to God and he says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. If I could just fly away and be at rest, that would be amazing. And so you see that David's not always just searching for victory in this situation. He just wants it all to go away. He wants to sprout wings and disappear like a little dove. And I think we, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that we are in the same boat as the psalmist. There are certain things that we just want to go away. Oh, that we would just have wings that would sprout out of our backs and if we could just fly back in time and go to a different time period, but that's not going to happen. You see, for us, I think many of us are tired of wearing our masks. Many of us are tired of enjoying the sweet fellowship of the saints that we get to experience here at SBC, and then we have that ripped out from underneath us the moment another wave of COVID spreads through the country. We've seen some really uh, concerning things happening in South Africa over the last two weeks as well, and we don't know what started the looting or the riots, but we can know, just like the psalmist, exactly where we take our prayers and our petitions. We can stand with the psalmist and say, through all of these situations, although we don't know the exact outcome, we can go and wrestle through these, these things in prayer with our Almighty God. So throughout Psalm 55, which is a song and a prayer to God, we are going to see what we can glean from the psalmist and how he approaches God in some of the toughest moments of his life. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 55. I'll be reading from verse 16 to 23. If you don't have your Bible with you, I'm sure the words will pop up as I read them. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and they do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, and yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. You will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. See, throughout the psalm, the main focus is prayer, which should be a core practice in the life of any Christian. And so my first point for today, point number one, is that God will hear me. You see that the psalmist is convinced that God will hear him, but not only that, that God will save him from the situation. God hears the prayers of the righteous, and he doesn't just stand by idly as chaos reigns. But David also isn't doing nothing. You'll see in verse 17, it says, Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint before God. You see, three meals sometimes aren't enough for our own physical bodies. I know for me, certainly not. I eat throughout the day. <laughs> Amen, says Matt. 
but our, our, our soul needs prayer even more than our physical body needs food. And so we need to be feasting on Jesus throughout the day, not just when we have a meal placed in front of us, not just when we go to bed that night. We need to make sure that we are constantly feasting on Jesus throughout the day. And you can see that the psalmist is not just reigniting his prayer life quickly because things are now starting to go pear-shaped. He is familiar with God in the place of prayer. Three times a day, there's consistency there that is not just built up overnight. He didn't just start quickly praying to God as much as possible to try and get what he wants and get the situation sorted. He's familiar with God in this place of prayer. And the only thing that we see that has changed in his life is that previously, these three times of prayer, they might have included praise and worship and thanksgiving towards God for what he had done, but now he's also slotting in his complaints. He knows that he has been treated unfairly by his own son, and he's laying it before God consistently, diligently, three times a day. And the reason why he's taking it to God is because he knows that God will hear his complaint, sure, but also that God will do something about it. We see that the psalmist also seems to paint this picture of somebody who's waging a war by themselves, and they're not doing very well. They are really struggling in, on this front. And so in verse 18, he says, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. God is so good that he helps this person who's failing in their own strength, and he says, I will redeem your soul in this battle that you are waging. And that's exactly what David needs at this moment because he is really struggling. He is in a tough spot here, and he doesn't know exactly what to do. You see, as it stands at the moment, his two options in this part of his life is, number one, as he's escaped with his friends and his family and his close household, they're either going to be hunted down by his own son Absalom and eventually killed by him, or they're going to have to turn around and kill his own son and take back the palace and the kingdom by force. There is no clear-cut winning strategy here. And so David doesn't know what the plan of action is. But throughout all of this, you see a very clear thing here, and that is that his confidence is in God alone. His confidence is not in his giant-slaying abilities. He knows that that was God working powerfully through him. He doesn't take credit for that. His confidence is not in the fact that he is the anointed king over Israel, because he knows that God was the one who placed him in that office as well. Before this, he was looking after a few dusty sheep on a mountainside. And so his confidence is in the God who slays giants, the God who puts him in this office, and it hasn't changed. And so through all these things, his faith is firmly anchored in God alone. So great is David's faith in God that he is even okay with losing his own life as long as that is what God has ordained. Look at what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25 to 26. And this is busy recounting the story as he and his close friends and his companions are leaving the city of Jerusalem. He says these words, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. You can see that the psalmist here clearly goes and fervently prays before God. He wants to be saved, but at the end of the day, he says, man, my trust is in God. He will do the right thing. He is God, and he trusts him. Next, David knows God's character. He knows that God opposes those who are proud and lofty, and yet he gives grace to the humble. 
And so he says in verse 18 that God will humble them. He'll bring down these wicked people. And they are no match for the God who has existed from all ages and who's over everything. They simply stand no chance against David's God. And so the only characteristic that these evil people seem to share with God is that they too are unchanging. They are unchanging in their wicked deeds, in the way that they are persecuting God's people. They're trying to make their own plans come into play, whereas God is unchanging in His righteousness, in His holiness. He is unchanging in His steadfast love towards His people, but He's also unchanging in His justice. And so that's why the psalmist goes and he looks at the situation. He looks at his own son who he does love. He sees how his son has set himself against God and against God's plans. And he logically concludes, God will level them. They don't stand a chance. My second point for today is that people persecute us. And for my second point, I'm going to be drawing on verse 20 and 21. It says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. You see, it is, of course, extremely tempting for us to go and demonize certain people when they treat us badly. We want to paint them a certain way. We don't want other people to say nice things about them. And so we would like to believe in our minds that the reason why they are that way is because they are such twisted individuals. It's because they weren't given enough time or love or attention as a child. That is why they are such terrible human beings. But in reality, they are people. They are people. They might be searching for something good, but they're doing it in a way which God certainly wouldn't approve of. And if we were really honest with ourselves, I think we would agree that we've all done things a certain way that God does not approve of. And so that's why point number two is people persecute us. It's not called the filthy, evil wretches of this world persecute us. People persecute us. And the psalmist actually takes it a step further. He doesn't say just people on a normal level. In verse 20, he says, my companion has stretched out his hand against his friends. See, he would count this person who's busy rebelling against him and who has betrayed him as his own companion. And that makes the betrayal so much more difficult to bear. The story is told of Julius Caesar, who was a great um, emperor in Rome. And he, he, was, he was betrayed by somebody who was very close to him. As the assassins were coming to kill him, he put up a ferocious battle. He fought off assassins for as long as he could, but one of the assassins' masks slipped, and it was Brutus, who was very close to Caesar. And it, said, it was said that at that moment, he gave up completely. It was too much for him to bear. And you see, here in this story, David is also being betrayed by somebody who's so close to him. It is his own son, Absalom. His own son who he would have raised, he would have helped grow up in the palace. They probably would have had little sword fights with wooden swords when he was younger. He might have taught him how to shoot with a bow and arrow and maybe how to fight later on. And instead of David being rewarded by getting a great retirement village in his old age, he now finds himself on the run for his life from his own son. And so David... And at times, we as well, we, we feel like in situations like these that we've been treated really unfairly, and that may be so. But I think we have this idea that if we've done nothing wrong, then nothing bad will ever happen to us, right? I think it's, it's sadly not true. 
if we look at the situation, we see that David is actually innocent when it comes to his actions towards Absalom. He hasn't done anything heinously wrong to him, and yet people are still out trying to kill him. If we look at Jesus' life, he is innocent in every sense of the word. And yet because of lying tongues, a, a crowd is ruffled up to go and crucify him. And so your innocence will never be a fit defense against lying tongues. I mean, just look at how the, the psalmist puts it in verse 21. He says, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. See, sweet words can be so deceptive, and they can perfectly camouflage the true intentions of a person's heart. And that is why you are not to put your faith in people around you. As much as they may seem to be on your side, as much as things seem to be going well, if you put your faith in all the people around you, then when things go badly, not if, when things go badly, you will find yourself in a dark place. Your faith and your trust needs to be in somebody who will never let you down when, when everything gets dropped. And that can only happen if your faith and your trust is in God alone. My third point, my third and final point for today is that we need to trust God in prayer and the result. Trusting God in prayer and the result from verse 22 to 23. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O oh God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. See, this is where we get the title of the psalm, which is cast your burden on the Lord. I just want you to dwell on that for a moment. How amazing is it that we get to take our burdens, the heaviness of life, the things that we can't adequately deal with, and we cast them onto our loving God. Jesus also, he reiterates this promise to us. So we know this is not a specific promise made to a specific king like David. This is something that God encourages all of us to do. Man, when life gets too much, Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you not find it strange that earlier on in our psalm, the very thing that David cries out for, that he might just sprout uh, wings like a bird and go off and be at rest, is the very thing that we are promised by Jesus. That if we would just come to him, if we would stop trying to do it all in our own strength, stop trying to handle everything and control everything into your side of the court, if you just take it to Jesus, you would have this rest that we so desperately need. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, we're encouraged to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. I just want you to hold that in contention with what Matt mentioned again in worship, is that he is the lion, he is strong, he is able to take all these things that you cast upon him, but he wants us to give them over to him because he cares for us. He is the lamb, he is loving, and he is gentle towards us. And just think about how much more we can approach God now than the psalmist can. You see, the psalmist went and he approached God based on the animal sacrifices. They were, these sins were covered by the blood of sheep and goats. And then we have ourselves in the New Testament. 
And we are sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into his family. Our sins have not been covered. They have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And our sins have been atoned for, not by the blood of sheep and goats, but by the blood of God's perfect son. And so any right that David ever had to go and approach God and to lay his prayers and his petitions before him, we have far more. We have far more. And that is why we are told in verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be moved. You'll notice in verse 23, we take a steep turn in the other direction. The psalmist has explained what part of his side is to do with the casting your burden on the Lord. And now we're going to look at what God is going to do in these situations. Verse 23 says, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. See, David clearly foretells what the end result is going to be in the situation. For those wicked people, they are going to be cast down into the pit of destruction. And yes, punishment is not always instant. We see that being cast down into the pit of destruction would only happen once these people have come face to face with God and they've been judged. But David also says that bloodthirsty men won't live out half their days because they are going head to head with God. And that is a massive difference between suffering in the life of the believer and suffering in the life of the unbeliever. You see, when a believer suffers, it is never for nothing, and there is always hope. And just give me a few moments to explain what I mean here. When a believer suffers, they are always able to cry out to God to help them. And this is no guarantee that suddenly everything will be magically fixed and it will all go away. Sometimes that does happen, and we praise God, we thank Him when we pray and He moves. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And as Archie Kendall says, when you've prayed and you've laid your petition before God, you can know that God has allowed this thing to come into your life. You can rest assured, know that God is with you through those moments. In James chapter 1, it says that this suffering actually helps to mold our character. And so when the problem comes into your life, it molds your character. It gives your faith a certain steadfastness. And once the problem is gone, that steadfastness remains. You have gained through these times of persecution and suffering. Not only that, but what 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so sometimes tough things happen to you, and it gives you a steadfastness in your nature and in your faith in Christ, and other times you'll be able to use the same comfort that God gives you to go and comfort others. But always in the life of a believer, pain is never without a purpose. And God will stand with you through those moments and you'll always have hope that God might remove them. But what about pain in the life of the unbeliever? See, for them, pain just hurts. It is terrible and it accomplishes nothing. God is not comforting them through their affliction. And the Holy Spirit is not slowly molding them more and more into the image of Christ through these times. In fact, the psalmist in verse 23 reveals a really scary fact. And that is that it is God himself who is busy afflicting, them, afflicting these people. And that there is no hope of the suffering ending because they have fallen into the hands 
of a righteous and holy God, and nobody can deliver anybody from the hands of our God. Or as Isaiah chapter 43 verse 13 says, even from eternity I am he, and none can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? And so any and all pain that the unbeliever experiences throughout their whole life is just a drop in the ocean compared to the eternity to come. That is why Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is truly a fearful thing. And the reason why I'm going into such detail here on what God's actions are in the situation is so that you would know and rest assured, leave it to God. It is not your lot, Christian, to go and take up your swords and to go and fight these people and to try and even the odds. Know that God does an excellent job of what he is doing. And wherever humans try to intervene with his work or to try and make it a bit better like we did in the Garden of Eden, it never goes according to plan. And so that's why in verse 23, the psalmist arrives at the conclusion that God will take up the case of the righteous. He will fight for them. He will severely outmatch anybody who raises their head against the living God. But the psalmist also goes and he ends off with this last phrase which we really need to take home today. And that is, but I will trust in you. Let other people trust in their wickedness, in their sly ways, their deception. But for you, say, I will trust in you. His lot is to trust in God. He knows that God will go and deal with people and deal with them, measuring out justice perfectly in, only, in the way that only he can. But for the psalmist, he says that he won't play any part in halving a person's days. He won't go and pronounce harmful judgments on these people for what they have done. Even though as a king, he would have every right to do that. He would have that sort of power. He acknowledges that that is God's part of the court, and he won't go onto that part. He says, for him, he will trust in God. And I feel that that is the wisdom that we really need to take away from today, is that when things are out of our control, it's okay, because it's still in God's hands. And so we can say, rest assured, even if we're going through pain, God is using it for something. And we will trust in God. As I wrap up, I just want to remind you that this psalm is written by somebody who is in desperate need. And so if you are also in desperate need, you also need to approach God's throne in prayer. It is the best possible outcome from any problem is that you were to get closer and closer to Jesus. And we see that Christ sets such a perfect example for us in how to do this. The night before he's about to be crucified, he f he's found praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood because he's so anxious for what is about to happen. And he prays these words. He says, Father, if it is possible, would you please remove this cup from me? But he doesn't end it there. In absolute humility and in trust uh, for, for God the Father, he says, he carries on, he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And does it not sound so similar to the way that the, psalm, the psalmist ends things? He says, but I will trust in you. Jesus says, yes, if you can remove this, this would be so great, but not my will, but yours be done. So yes, earnestly pray, lay your petitions before God, but at the end of the day, say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew Henry once said, let us never be weary of praying often 
for God is not weary of hearing. He shall hear my voice and not blame me for coming too often. The more often, the better and the more welcome. And so for you, believer, I encourage you, reach out to God in prayer. These moments where you feel that you're drifting away from God or growing cold in the place of prayer, make sure that you make a concerted effort to approach God's throne of grace through the blood of Christ. Psalm 116 verse 2 echoes the same thought. And I love the way that the NLT puts it. It's so beautiful. It says, because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Let us be like the psalmist. Let us pray as long as we have breath in our lungs, because that is about as long as we will need Christ forever and ever and evermore. Joe is going to lead us in a time of response. The purpose of the time of response is that we just take a moment to reflect on what God has said to us, to not quickly dive into the next section, but really just take a moment to say, what has God said to us this morning? So just take a moment. What is, what is something that stood out to you? Bryce uh, said during the sermon, he says, our faith is firmly anchored in God alone. Where have you been putting your trust? Has it been your skill? Has it been others? Has it been governments? God is in control and he is in control lovingly so. What can you take to him? What do you need to take to him and lay at your father's feet in prayer? If our faith is anchored in God alone, then we need to feast on Jesus often. How's that going? How can you pray more this week? How can you feast on him like the psalmist did morning, noon, and evening? What can you commit to doing a little bit more this week too? Before we pray, I would love to read this hymn that I was reminded of as Bryce was preaching. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged take it to the Lord in prayer. And here it is. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrow share, Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you're a God who hears, that you're a God who bends down and listens to our prayer. Our Lord, we are thankful that you are attentive to us, constantly looking at us, constantly listening to us. But as Matthew Henry says, you never get bored of hearing our voice, but we can come to you often. And this is a privilege that has come at a cost. It has come at the cost of Jesus dying on the cross for us, that we might know you and enjoy you, but also that we might communicate and have a relationship with you. So, Lord, we want to take this as seriously as we possibly can. We want to draw as closest to you as we possibly can. We want to be have this intimate relationship with you and to do so with prayer. And we're thankful, Lord, that you care about that and you want that. Would you help us? Would you stir up in us a desire to love you more and to do so through prayer? That through whatever trial and temptation we go through, whatever struggle that we might have, that we know that we have an, or a God who's in control of everything and loves us. And that we would love you and communicate that through prayer. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. We're going to sing our last song. Let's, let's respond to God in worship. Yes, Lord, as David learned to train his song to be sung to you, Lord, in prayer, the psalm that we had this morning, we pray, teach us, teach, teach our songs to rise to you, Lord. So grateful that you are the best teacher ever, Jesus. You're the lamb that has suffered, Lord, and it's wonderful to know that we haven't been yet in that place where you've shed blood in order to submit to the Father's will. How much more can you bear with us, Lord? Teach us song, Jesus. Come teach us this morning. Teach my song. Teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Teach my song. Teach my song to rise to you, only you. When temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Let's sing, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. shaky ground when everything else 
is not firm beneath our feet. Lord, we get to enjoy and know that you are our hope and our stay. You are a firm rock in which we can cling on to and hold on to. And not only just hold on for dear life, but enjoy you. To have life in you. Oh Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, this week that you would draw us closer to ourselves. Clo closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us online and uh, hope to see you soon. Cheers.